Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's a, a poem called Psalm Forty Two, uh, Krimad Madam by Malcolm Guy. Quimad Madam is Latin for how, H-A-W. You are my heart's desire from the first to last. Like as the heart desires the water brooks, so longs my soul towards you, so I thirst. For living streams, not for the dusty books they write about you, nor the empty words that ring from pulpits, nor the haughty looks of those who market you. These are the shards of broken idols. I long for the deep, the deep in you that cause the deep in me, the chords that sound those depths and summon me to weep, at first with tears of grief and then with tears of joy, that I may sow those tears and reap a timeless harvest that the ripened ears of grain may shine as clean and clear as gold, shucked of the husk of all my wasted years. I'd like to, um, first, as I was trying to claim the promise of Jesus in Acts 1.8, that we shall receive power uh, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and we shall be his witnesses. This is our public witness, one part of our public witness. And Jesus said he will give us power for exactly that. Let me pray for a moment. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Thank you for getting us out of our beds and taking time to acknowledge your sovereignty in our lives. And I pray you would be with us now as we look into your word together. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this... Uh, sermon is uh, dedicated to our friend Audrey. So, uh, it's not easy uh, to deal with discomfort, even harder to face outright evil. Who would wish to always have pain present, whether physical or mental? We seem to have a lot of it right now in our world. In the aftermath of COVID, there has been a rise in depression and suicides, especially in our younger fellow citizens. There's a rise in crime and confusion, unstable economies, and now wars in foreign lands. And here now in our community, we're dealing with tragic things that bring us to the edge of uncertainty. Turning to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, I think, can help us process these burdens. Um, Second Corinthians was Paul's follow-up to first Corinthians. First Corinthians, he admonished his brothers and sisters in Corinth for the way they were treating one another. It is a much more in-your-face letter. This second letter is not an admonishment, but an encouragement, because they heard him and changed their ways. So in this morning's passage, 
I want to look at three things based on the three phrases Paul uses here in 2 Corinthians 4. In verse 1, the phrase he uses is this ministry. In verse 7, he uses the phrase this treasure. And finally, in verses 1 and 16, he uses this wonderful phrase, we do not lose heart. There's so much richness in this passage that a whole series could be done on just this chapter. And I will touch on some of those things, but for the sake of time, because I can talk a lot, I narrowed it down to this ministry, this treasure, and we do not lose heart. So this ministry is an interesting phrase to use. It carries with it an abundance of meaning. Even if we think about it in our modern sense, we usually think about it being delegated to a certain group of people. They are in the ministry. In politics and government, it's in the ministry. They are in the ministry of defense in some parts of the world. So we use it in ways that are narrow, but that's not necessarily the sense here. But to show what this could mean, I want to look at the phrase utilizing two exercises. The first way I want to look at the phrase this ministry is if what we could glean from its meaning if we only had these six verses right after it. The second way I want to look at it is in its context, to actually have its context, having the whole of the second letter of Corinthians, particularly chapter 3. So first, what could we see what the meaning is, what Paul means by this ministry, if we only had these six verses? Let me read them to you again. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what could we conclude about the phrase this ministry from just these verses? The word therefore means that some previous thought is being brought to a conclusion in this section. But if we only had these verses, we would not know what that thought was. It said, uh, I heard this from Bible scholars and other students, that when you find a word, the word therefore, you need to find what it is there for. <laughs> it's a funny way, but anytime you see a therefore, ask yourself, what is it there for? But we can see that this ministry is ours by mercy from God. And that's interesting. Mercy is usually dispensed to someone when there is some sort of harsh judgment ready to fall. Mercy, my Lord, mercy, have mercy on me. But the ministry is a mercy from God. So we know it is something we shouldn't have deserved, and yet we have it from the hand of God. So we're receiving a mercy. And by this mercy, I would say, because, and because of it, it means we don't lose heart. I mean, after gaining a mercy from a judgment, why wouldn't that give you courage? Next, we see that this ministry means a change of behavior on our part. Underhanded and disgraceful ways are renounced. That word renounced means to disown in this original language. 
Second, cunning is not practiced. That means that we don't trick people. Third, if we only had these verses to define this ministry, it would entail not changing God's communication to us, his word. Paul uses the word tamper, kind of like sabotaging an engine. Fourth, the second half of of verse 2 seems to essentially say that we would be transparent about our lives before people and God. So this ministry seems to entail these behaviors. Verses 3 and 4 introduce the word gospel, meaning good news. That seems to say this good news is veiled to some by an otherworldly small g God. It says this God blinds people from this light, and that light is Christ, it says here, his glory, who is the image of God. So this ministry, we can conclude from these verses, is about a person called Christ. It's about something he's done, perhaps, or who he is. And it's called good news. He seems to be equal to God, maybe even God himself. And this person, this Christ, and the good news is unseen to some, while light to others. We can get that from these verses. But what about verses 5 and 6, the phrase, this ministry? Well, in verse 5, we see that it's something proclaimed. That means it's some sort of public expression, probably vocal or even incarnational, physical. And it is not Paul that is proclaimed, but a specific person, now clearly named, where we only have these verses, Jesus Christ. He's proclaimed. Then in verse 6, we see interesting information about God calling light into darkness. And this light is paralleled with knowledge about him and about his glory and who this person, Jesus Christ, is. Now, just staying briefly within the confines of those few verses and fleshing out the meaning of the phrase of this ministry, I hope it shows you how rich God's scripture is. Just in those short verses, all those concepts I just shared have a breadth and depth to them that we could take centuries to plumb them. It kind of reminds me of how C.S. Lewis expressed this, and my my pastor in New York, Tim Keller, would use this. In one of his novels, uh, C.S. Lewis had one of his characters exclaim, come further up, come further in. It's what these small verses do. They call us to go further up and further in with God. But we don't have only these verses to give us definition of this phrase, this ministry. We have previous verses. We have the whole book book of 2 Corinthians, and for that matter, the rest of scriptures to give us context to this phrase, this ministry. But I will keep the context to the previous verses in chapter 3, verses 12 and 18, through 18. It says this. Paul wrote this right before uh, the first verse of 2 Corinthians 4. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed." What Paul is trying to give some clarity to in 2 Corinthians is to an occurrence that happened centuries before in Exodus 34. And let me read that incident to you because it's very fascinating. Exodus 34, 29 through 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, 
as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that his skin, the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put a veil back over his face again until he went in to speak with God. So when the Israelites were at Sinai and Moses came down from the top of the mountain of God with the tablets, communication from God, Moses' face had a physical and psychological impact on the Israelites. Moses' face shined. I don't know how. I can't explain that. So, and as a result of that, because it shines so much, all of Israel was afraid. So Moses veils his face so that they're not afraid. When he emerged from the tabernacle, so the tabernacle was a temple, and Moses would go in and out and commune with God and get, uh, you know, interact with God and find out what Israel was needed. When he emerged from it, he'd veil his face. When he went back into the tabernacle, he unveiled it before God. This was the only way Moses could interact with his fellow Israelites, by veiling his face. Veiled with Israel, unveiled with God. This is what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 4 with this ministry. It's similar That which was veiled is no longer hidden to some. In chapter 3, verse 14, it says, Only through Christ is the veil taken away. In verse 16, Paul writes, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So this ministry is an unveiling, a revealing. It is an unveiling of the gospel. And this has two directions, from us outward to others, like Moses emerging from the tabernacle to the Israelites, and the other towards us. In this case, when we, Moses would go into God, he'd take the veil off, he'd receive, but then he would, Israelites' response to Moses was, please veil your face. So we have directions here, we, outward from us, and then we receive. What was the Israelites' response? They were afraid. This is why why prayers for unbelievers, for their eyes to be opened, were made. You see that phrase. You look at the New Testament. Remember that moment when the guy comes to uh, lay his hands on Moses, or not Moses, Paul? What happened to Paul on the road to Damascus? He was blinded, right? He saw God and he was blinded. And someone came laid hands on him, what happened? He prayed that his eyes would be open. Something like scales fell from Paul's eyes and his eyes were, he could see again. You see that kind of thing over and over again. It's a prayer that we should have. We pray that people's eyes would be unveiled. Let's look at this practically in two ways. 
This ministry we have is not a private thing. It is a public thing. In verse 5, Paul uses the word proclaim and even uses the description of light. Light is hard to hide. Remember the song, Hide It Under a Bushel? No. How are you proclaiming Christ? And I am not talking about wordless proclamation, though that is a part of proclamation. There is a need for not using words, using give cup of water, a cloak, food, support. I am talking about proclaiming voice, words. My former boss in New York City, when I lived there, and worked there, at one point, after several years of me working in ministry in the arts, said to me that he understood the general reluctance of artists who were Christians to proclaim in a direct way the gospel. He understood their reluctance. Art is very indirect, can be very indirect. We've got a lot of direct art these days, but it can be very indirect and sometimes hard to understand. And my boss Larry is saying, I understand why Christians who are artists would want to not be direct. But, he said, it's clear to me from the Bible that public proclamation is a part of the deal. However hard and unwilling a follower is, it's a part of the deal. This is public. The crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth was not done in a dark dungeon hidden from view. It was done publicly for eyes to see and ears to hear. Luke 23, 44-49 says this, it was, about now, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had been taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Public. It's even called a spectacle. I'm sorry, brothers and sisters, we need to be public too. And like Moses and Jesus, we need to be mediators. That's the second characteristic here. Practically, between God and our neighbors. It's public and there's a mediation going on. Moses was a mediator. Moses went between God and Israel. Just as Israel, as a nation, was to be the priestly mediators between God and the rest of the nations. You get that? Moses was a priest to the Israelites, then the Israelites were to be priests to the nations. But Moses' mediation was only a foreshadowing of the final mediator, Jesus Christ. His work brought to, uh, that to completion between God and all of humanity. And now Jesus has given us the responsibility of that mediation. We are to continue the work as Christ followers of the mediation between God and humanity. How are you doing that? Are you consistently, weekly, even daily, getting into his word to reflect on how he has communicated to us? through Jesus Christ, the great mediator, so that it prepares you and how you can may talk to your neighbors and your friends about how his word applies to their lives. In your life, words and deeds 
Do you act in ways to draw, challenge, and invite people towards reconciliation with God? This is what Paul meant by the phrase, this ministry. But I think the next phrase I want to focus on helps us flesh out a bit more. What did Paul mean by this treasure? When I think of this phrase, the first thing that comes to my mind is, of course, the poem, and I've read it from this pulpit multiple times, uh, by R.S. Thompson, but I think it's worth rereading, called The Bright Field. I've seen the sun break through to illuminate a small field for a while and gone my way and forgotten it. But that was the pearl of great price, the one field that had treasure in it. I realize now that I must give all that I have to possess it. Life is not hurrying on to a receding future, nor hankering after an imagined past. It is the turning aside, like Moses to the miracle of the lit bush, to a brightness that seemed as transitory as as your youth once, but is the eternity that awaits you. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. What is a treasure? It is something valued. It is something protected, cherished, sometimes hidden. Think of the gold in Fort Knox. Sometimes it's displayed. Think of the gold of Liberace. Do you young people know who Liberace is? <laughs> Look it up, and you'll know what that reference means. Sometimes it's hidden, sometimes it's displayed. What do we value, protect, cherish? Sometimes we hide it, sometimes we display as a culture. We value ourselves. The explosion of social media seems to indicate that. We value youth, money itself and its use. We value entertainment. We value connection regardless of the type and whether it's good or not. I'm thinking of the increased use of smartphones. To get a better sense of this, I asked myself what it was that I treasured. What do I protect, cherish, sometimes hide, sometimes display? If people came into our house, my wife and I's house, they would see that Sarah and I value art and books. We keep important papers and valued documents in a firebox hidden away. We treasure that stuff. Sometimes someone would see that my wife values these little dishes called I will hold the tea bag dishes. But those things are only minimal indicators of what we value. When we treasure something, do we treasure it the way Jesus said about the man finding something in a field or the merchant finding that great that pearl of great price. He was talking about the greatest treasure of humanity, of course, himself. Thinking about treasure in this way shows us what real treasure is. Jesus also said this about treasure. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You can see what is treasured by the immediately visible. But what Jesus is saying here is how valuable unseen things are. Jesus used an equation. Treasure equals heart. Where your treasure is, 
there your heart is. Where is your heart? You find that and you also see where your treasure is. Even before this formula of treasure equals heart, Jesus gives us a preface to it. He tells us where real real treasure should be, and that is in heaven. So when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure, I think he's making a direct reference to the treasure in heaven, the gospel, to Jesus, the biggest treasure in and from heaven. One last word on this phrase, this treasure. As I've mentioned, a treasure is something valued. But I've wondered for a few years if this is something that we have allowed to infiltrate the proclamation of the gospel in our culture. What am I saying? Have we cheapened the gospel in ways that make it appear essentially empty to people in our community? What do I mean? Let's take, for example, the idea of the message of the gospel being free. Is the gospel free? Well, yes. And no. I recently texted with a friend asking them if they wanted to have some journal pamphlets about cultural topics that I thought they would find interesting. That, and, I was, and thinking that they would cost something, that person replied, I'd be glad to contribute to their cost. I said, that's fine, except they're free. You can contribute to free. How much is free? <laughs> My friend replied rightly, free is of infinite worth. After all, the greatest gift in all of history is both rich and free. Well, they were right. But I replied, well, it wasn't actually free. I replied, we just didn't pay for it. Have we let the idea of the free nature of the gospel dump it into cheap gospel? What about power? Uh Uh-oh. We have allowed, have we allowed the drive for justice or for the protection of life or insert your ideal here, get in the way of the spread of the gospel? Because any of those things are being kicked around a lot in the halls of political power and in our culture and has driven large swaths of the church on both sides into political machines rather than houses of true healing. Allowing power to become the driving aspect of our churches narrows the gospel and therefore can render it foolish and uninteresting. Have we let the idea of power, of the power of the gospel, dump it? Into being uninteresting and irrelevant. I am not saying that we should not stand for justice, or also life, and even to do that as legitimately and as wise citizens. We should pursue justice and the protection of life as wise citizens of our culture. I am asking that if we've allowed that good pursuit to twist into something that now competes with God. I am not saying that we shouldn't say the gospel isn't free. It is free. But I am asking if perhaps we should add some vigor to the cost of the gospel as well, even as it is offered freely. It is freely offered. It was not freely paid.
that payment killed God. Finally, the phrase, we do not lose heart. I think this is the most encouraging and yet in many ways daunting phrase in the chapter. After looking at the first two phrases, it's a little easier to see how we may not lose heart. If this ministry is Jesus and the gospel that we now offer to others in words and deeds, then why would we lose heart with a message that comes from the creator and sustainer of the universe? If this treasure is a treasure for this same reason, it is Jesus, a treasure that is both rich and free. Then why lose heart? If this doesn't do enough for you, let me go further. In verses 7 through 9, it says this, but, it, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. This, so this treasure in jars of clay or earthen vessels is not to show anything about us, is show the surpassing power of God, not any power on our part. By the way, why would anyone store anything of value in clay pots? <laughs> Was that the best form of protecting valuables back then? Hey, babe, we're going to put our social security papers or birth certificates and passports in these pottery. That in a fire would get crushed and everything would burn up. Let me use a more up-to-date example. <laughs> that pottery and paper are kind of old school. Let me update it for you. Hey, babe, we're going to store all our valuable data in the easiest company that is to hack and steal stuff from. So easy, in fact, that when Mickey Lang is able to crawl, she could crawl across my keyboard and she'd get, steal everything we own from our <laughs> bank account. That's how easy. We want to store our... That's what it seems like, jars of clay. I jest, but that's what it seems like when Paul mentions storing treasures in earthen vessels. But let me read this for you. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So God's foolish storing of treasures in jars of clay may be better than even the most sophisticated safes made by human hands. Let me ask you this. What else is stored? What else was stored in clay jars back in the time of Christ? I'll blow your mind on this. It blew my mind. What else was stored? Think the first miracle. Wine. Wine. Hmm. He stored this treasure in jars of clay. All right. Verses 8 and 9 are the real point here. Let me read it with some more definitions of the words. I'm going to reread this section here. We are afflicted or hard-pressed or crowded in every way, but not crushed, meaning cramped, or we still have room. We're perplexed, which means seem to have no way out, we're at a loss, but not driven to despair, which means despondency or without resource. We're persecuted, that pretty much means we're persecuted, but not forsaken, which means not left behind or deserted. We're struck down, thrown prostrate to the ground on our faces, but we're not destroyed, which means to be utterly physically or figuratively destroyed, basically annihilated. So we are hard-pressed or crowded in every way, but we're not cramped. We still have room. We seem to have 
no, seem to have no way out or are at a loss, but we're not driven to despondency or without resource. We are persecuted, but we're not left behind or deserted. We're thrown to the ground on our faces, but we're not utterly destroyed. What I just read was the more words that flesh out the Greek meanings of those words Paul was using here. So when I, I read it, how can you not be in a place where you don't lose heart? To live as Christ, to die as gain, Paul wrote in Philippians. We do not lose heart. Again, verses 16 and 17 says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And here we finally get to why I'm doing this sermon today. In Audrey's final week, As I was seeing and hearing the stories uh, from my wife, and our friends of the burdens and the horrors of a deteriorating body racked with cancer, the phrase light momentary affliction came to my mind. I hadn't remembered Uh, where that phrase came from, uh, from the New Testament. So when I quickly looked it up, I saw that it came from 2 Corinthians 4. And I knew I had a sermon coming up where I could choose the passage, and it was chosen for me. Okay, i got to get through this. All right, light momentary affliction. Is it a light momentary affliction when you have to pull a tube out of your friend's throat while your other friend holds a towel for the blood coming out of her mouth. Is it a light momentary affliction that a capable and wise lawyer who would have united families and restored marriages is now gone? And will not be there anymore to do that. Let me expand my examples, ones I'm familiar with. Is it a light momentary affliction uh, to lose your father at four years old or your brother when you're in high school? Is it a light momentary affliction to lose a daughter To lose a daughter at four and a half to muscle cancer. Is a light momentary affliction to lose a friendship after 33 years. Now, I don't ask these questions out of bitterness at all. I don't ask them 
as an accuser. I don't ask them as one outside, pointing my finger at God in anger. I ask them as one who is his servant and a brother and a son. I ask them in the same spirit of the Father. Who approached Jesus to ask help with his son when he said, I do believe, help my unbelief. Now, God through Paul is not being patronizing here as if he's patting our hands saying, there, there, this too shall pass. What could possibly make these things I mentioned light and momentary? Aldry's degenerating death, my brother losing a daughter at four and a half, my wife losing her dad at four. The only thing that could make such things light and momentary would itself have to be heavy and eternal. And that heavy and eternal thing would have to not just deal with this sort of list of horrors I've shared, but it would have to be able to carry millions more. It would have to be the heaviest thing ever carried. A heavy and eternal thing. In fact, it would have to be a weight so heavy, it's beyond compare. Do you have any ideas what that could be? Let me help you. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count quality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself. (sighs) To the point of death, even death on a cross. This brings way more significance to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus than perhaps you first thought. His life, death, and resurrection has to exceed the years that Sarah and I will, and all of us, will live on this earth without Audrey. It has to exceed the 24 years my brother has had to live without his niece. Well, his daughter, my niece. Insert your significant death here. Insert the atrocities of mankind to the end of time itself. Jesus of Nazareth's resurrection kicked all of them over, and that event has been offered to us Thanks, brother. (laughs) Thanks. And that event is offered to us to see. Flannery O'Connor wrote a character in her story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, called The Misfit. He was a murderer. He was a mean character. And he said this, Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead. And he shouldn't have done it. He's shown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then there's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can by killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. No pleasure but meanness. And O'Connor says, he said that last part with a snarl. Mm -hmm. 
We do not lose heart because Jesus already lost his heart in death and raised it in resurrection. And that heart was large enough to cover all these afflictions we now face. And the meanness of this world, as the misfit put it, it is a heart that beats even at this moment eternally on God's throne in heaven. Do you hear it? Do you believe it? Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for carrying the weight. So much weight that even facing the death of close friends and family and hearing of atrocities far off are slight momentary afflictions. We look forward to the day when even those slight momentary afflictions will be gone and we'll be united with our friends and family again. Thank you for reminding us even now in these next moments that these jars of clay were probably filled with the thing you treasure most, which is your redemptive blood. Now be with us for the rest of the service and the rest of our day. In Jesus' name, amen.